Section 28 of Charles II by Osmond Airy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 4 Charles, Louis, and Parliament. Part 7. The interval of political repose thus secured by Charles was occupied by a serious crisis within the domestic circle. For a long while, the empire of Louise de Queruaille had been unquestioned, but she was now threatened by no unworthy rival. In January 1676, Hortense Mancini, Duchess Mazarin, with whom we have met thrice before, was received by Charles and his court with all the curiosity and admiration due to one whose attractions had excited and whose adventures had scandalized every court in Europe. Of precocious beauty at fourteen, she had preserved that beauty unimpaired to thirty, and twenty years later she was able to say, I have never been more beautiful. The Windsor miniature shows the proud Italian beauty, the superb development of the figure, the lustrous eye, neither blue nor grey nor quite black, the rich blood mantling under a skin which needed no rouge, the silken waves of jet-black hair. In default of becoming a queen, she was married to the son of the Marshal de la Meilleraye. This extraordinary man, created Duke Mazarin, allowed his natural abilities to be ruined by a religious mania which turned him into a driveling monk. He relinquished all his offices and governments as too worldly in their nature. He mutilated valuable statues and pictures because they represented the worship of the creature rather than of the creator. It is difficult to believe that he forbade the farm maidens to milk the cows lest gross thoughts should invade their minds, and that he wished to have the front teeth extracted from his daughters' mouths that they might not become vain of their own beauty. Such insanity had its natural result. With another girl-wife of like nature and treatment, Hortense broke the bounds of the convent in which her husband had placed her, dressed herself as a man, and fled, not unaccompanied, to Italy. On her return to France, her husband again caused her to be confined in a religious house, but Louis the Fourteenth himself insisted on her being set at liberty. For the next three years she lived with the so-called Abbe Réal, one of the most depraved men of the age, and in January 1676, still in male attire, she reached London under pretense of visiting Mary of Modena. The men raved about her beauty, the women were consumed with jealous anxiety. The Duchess of Cleveland gave up the contest at once and retired to France. Louise de Querouaille stayed at her post, though ill from a miscarriage, neglected for the time by Charles and conscious of the popular hatred. In April she was again ill, her sickness increased by discontent at somebody's visiting the Duchess Mazarin at Lady Harvey's house. Nelly, the irrepressible, went into deep mourning in mocking sorrow for the Frenchwoman's approaching fall. The whole court rallied to the new adventuress. Arlington and Monmouth hoped to use her against James and Louise. 
Mary of Modena accorded her the closest intimacy. Charles, though not yet an acknowledged lover, visited her constantly and himself supplied the increase of her husband's allowance which Louis had refused. Louise now despaired of recovering her lost dominion. On August 6th, Courtin described for his master's amusement a visit he had just paid her. Elle m'ouvrit son cœur en présence de deux filles qui sont à elle. Ces deux filles étaient collées contre la muraille, les yeux baissés. La maîtresse versait en torrent de larmes. Les soupirs et les sanglots coupaient ses paroles. Enfin, jamais spectacle ne m'a paru plus triste ni plus touchant. La scène de la signora adolorada, answered Louvois, a assez diverti sa majesté. But while giving him material for cynical amusement, the matter became politically serious for Louis. The fall of Louise would imply to foreign courts the weakening of French influence with Charles, and this might have a baneful effect upon his prospects at the Congress of Nijmegen. His representatives there were accordingly instructed that both her health and her credit with Charles were unimpaired, although Charles was at that very time visiting Hortense in the apartments of the Countess of Sussex, his own daughter by the Duchess of Cleveland, and although Courtin himself was emphatic as to the newcomer's supremacy. If you had only seen her dancing the Fourlan to her guitar, you would at once have espoused her interests. Charles, he added, saw Louise frequently, but only in public. He spent his leisure far more often with Nelly, a fact which that young lady laughingly quoted to Courtin in support of her demand for a present from Louis. But on the eve of the meeting of Parliament, Courtin's address saved the situation. He secured a formal reconciliation between the two sultanas, while Nelly looked on with unrestrained merriment. Charles, who greatly disliked quarrels among his women, encouraged them to actual amity. Louise gave a dinner to her rival and appeared with her in the same carriage, and peace reigned in the camp of the concubines. But as always, these domestic complications meant vast expense, and largely through them the financial position was again desperate. Louis was not in a condition to give more than he had bargained for. So strained was French finance that he was himself forced to borrow at ten percent interest. But he regularly paid his quarterly salary to Charles. On February 14, 1677, Courtin wrote, I received the October quarter. It came very apropos, for the King of England wanted money to give to those accustomed to make a noise in order to be better bought. On April 1st he wrote again, To my knowledge he had distributed all this money to gain the votes he stood in need of. He has so well served the King that he deserves to be assisted in his necessities. And at the end of each quarter, Louis received from Charles the following holograph form of voucher. J'ai reçu du roi très chrétien par les mains de Monsieur Courtin la somme de cent mille écus, monnaie de France, pour le second quartier qui est échu le dernier jour de juin. Faites à Whitehall. Charles R. But these supplies were not enough for Charles's needs. 
so low had the credit of the crown sunk that it was found impossible to raise a loan in london and it was an obvious necessity that parliament should meet danby promised charles that if he would but break with france he would have supplies far beyond anything that louis could offer but although louis could not prevent parliament from assembling on february twenty fifth sixteen seventy seven he could afford eighty thousand pounds for bribery and he strengthened his alliance with the shaftesbury coalition courtin was ordered to give charles no rest every day he tells us he was at whitehall and he never left the court until eleven at night berkshire was bribed to create a party in the lords coleman james's secretary was bribed lauderdale though he refused bribes as arlington had refused them was secured as arlington had been through his rapacious wife all due economy was used in this sale trafic very often courtin reported a few dozens of champagne which were less costly than a money bribe would command a useful vote a blunder of the shaftesbury party gave danby a marked advantage at the outset by which he was enabled not merely to carry an unconditional vote of six hundred thousand pounds but also to rid himself of his most powerful foes for a season a prorogation without precedent was warranted by an imprisonment without example that namely of shaftesbury buckingham and salisbury for which an excuse had been given by their assertion that parliament was ipso facto dissolved by a prorogation of more than a year discussion of grievances also was postponed until some broken windows could be mended for the early march winds were too much for the most ardent member of the country party but when damages had been repaired the commons showed how deeply moved they were by the tidings of the successes of louis against william and his allies both houses addressed the king to recall the troops serving in the french army twice they urged him to declare war against france with offers of unlimited support louis heard from courtin that the english would give everything for a war with france even to their shirts as william's position grew more and more desperate the commons became more aggressive charles had already as we have seen made an important concession of principle by showing them the traite simule even though he lied in doing it they now told him that they would give no money for alliances which were not first laid before them for discussion this was a new departure of a very serious kind foreign alliances and the decision of peace and war were the choicest flowers of the royal prerogative the demand implied a violation of the constitution as it had been understood for centuries much more marked than that contained in the king's claim to the dispensing power which had been so bitterly resented for charles to have given way would have been to confess himself utterly worsted in the running fight the speech of angry contempt in which on may twenty eighth he rejected the demand and which appears to have thoroughly cowed the house for the moment is an amplification of his curt answer to van Beuningen, the ambassador of the states who had spoken of the sympathy shown by parliament with the confederates tossing his handkerchief into the air charles exclaimed i care just that for parliament 
in the plainest language he now told the commons to mind their own business could i have been silent i would rather have chosen to do so than to call to mind things so unfit for you to meddle with as are contained in some parts of your last addresses you do not content yourselves with desiring me to enter into such leagues as may be for the safety of my kingdom but you tell me what sort of leagues they must be and with whom should i suffer this fundamental power of making peace and war to be so far invaded though but once as to have the manner and circumstances of leagues prescribed to me by parliament it's plain that no prince or state would any longer believe that the sovereignty of england rests in the crown nor could i think myself to signify any more to foreign princes than the empty sound of a king wherefore you may rest assured that no condition shall make me depart from or lessen so essential a part of the monarchy he emphasized this rating and the little account he took of his listeners by directing them to adjourn not to adjourn themselves members rose to protest but the speaker without any question put pronounced the house adjourned and left the chair charles added a parting cut of the whip by ordering his speech to be published in next day's news-book while the transactions or addresses of the house were not allowed to be printed or even dispersed in written form thus says the earnest marvel in the bitterness of his heart were they well rewarded for their itch of perpetual sitting and of acting the parliament being grown to that height of contempt as to be gazetted among runaway servants lost dogs strayed horses and highway robbers from may to july from july to december from december to april sixteen seventy eight this barn of commons was adjourned with a similar contempt of privilege though charles did in fact for reasons now to be related summon them to meet in january in this manner they were kicked from adjournment to adjournment as from one stair down to another and when they were at the bottom kicked up again having no mind yet to go out of doors charles had spoken and acted boldly but to any one who has become familiar with his methods it has of course been clear that both words and action meant that he had somehow acquired or that he expected to acquire the funds which parliament refused to give how far he was within his rights by thus meeting an attack upon his prerogative is a question of political casuistry which will be answered less by reason than by feeling clifford would have answered it in one way andrew marvell would have answered it in another as a matter of fact he had only to take another step along the familiar road so long as louis was at war he had in the existing temper of parliament a saleable article the meeting or the not meeting of parliament negotiations had been in progress ever since february haggling worthy of a couple of jew peddlers went on throughout the spring and summer of sixteen seventy seven in which charles kept the whip hand of louis by adjourning and not proroguing danby to whom the job was thoroughly distasteful and who drank openly at a public dinner to war with france proved himself all the more a firm and audacious bargain driver louis pleaded poverty but in vain and on august fifth 
he was obliged to offer two million livres for charles's promise that he would not allow parliament to meet until the end of april sixteen seventy eight and that in order to discourage william's allies they should be informed of his intention the king was thus able to carry on the ordinary expenses of government which included the satisfying of the women while louis gained the prospect of nine months more of freedom from english interference the necessary touches of comedy were not wanting courtin who had carried out the negotiation but who was considered scarcely equal to the part yet to be played was replaced by that strange figure paul barillon d'amoncourt but his feelings were carefully considered he was allowed to ask for his recall on the ground that his health was suffering from the london fogs and charles considerately advised him in future always to wear welsh flannel next his skin barillon's first business was to deal with a little instance of sharp practice worthy of a stockbroker in a very small way charles declared that by two million livres he meant two hundred thousand pounds which at the existing rate of exchange was higher in value when barillon remonstrated he immediately interrupted me and said in the name of god do not speak of this affair i am so confused about it that i cannot bear its being spoken of go to the treasurer and do as you and he shall understand the matter barillon replied that danby's attitude was a foregone conclusion finally says barillon the king conducted me to the door of the chamber which he opened himself and again repeated i am so ashamed that i cannot speak any more to you go see the treasurer for he has made known to me such large wants that i cannot believe the king my brother will leave me in this embarrassment the result was of course that charles and danby had their way End of section twenty eight